Hello, I'm just dropping in before the episode starts to remind you that our first book club book for August is Sweet Bean Paste by Darian Sukagawa. Sweet Bean Paste is about Sentaro, a lonely man with a criminal record and fading dreams of becoming a writer. He spends his days in a small confectionery shop selling doriaki where he befriends Takue, an elderly woman with a troubled past and a dark secret. We hope that you will read along with us and that you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Lazy Sunday Book Club. Um, I'm your podcast queen for this week, Annie, and I'm joined by Sophie. Hi. And Fee. Hello. And this week, I am delighted we're going to be talking about poetry. The poetry episode, guys. Your smile is just huge, like going from cheek to cheek. I'm very excited for poetry, in part because as preparation, I just chose five of my favourite poets and made Soph and Fee read five poems. I could have done like 20, but we stuck to five. But also, we're just going to have, you know, a chill chat about poetry. We will put in the episode notes the names of the poems. And yeah, let's get started. So um, first questions first. And this is, I mean, the answer from me is kind of obvious, but the two of you, do you guys read poetry? I haven't read poetry, I would say like properly, um, since Mm -hmm. having to do it for GCSE. Oh, okay. So like the anthology stuff. I don't think I ever really read it beforehand either. I think the only thing maybe I read was like like Dr. Zeus, which I don't know <laughs> counts as poetry. <laughs> Dr. Zeus actually has a really interesting, um, very sort of iconic meter metrical pattern. He's like one of the only people to write in that kind of meter. And it does mean that he has some really interesting stuff going on. Poetry is cool. Poetry is cool. Because it it has the, if you think about Dr. Zeus, it has a very distinctive rhythm. But <laughs> A, every time you read it, you're like, this is obviously a Dr. Zeus poem. And B, makes it very sort of easy and digestible and rhythmic for a child. Yeah. So like, you can do cool stuff with poetry. So what about you? Well, I spent a lot of time studying poetry because obviously when I, I did English, I specialised in older Middle English, which is predominantly poetry. Your prose as like a narrative isn't something that really came until what, like, I think the first text, the oldest text was probably Mallory. Mm. There's not a lot before that. So most of what I studied was poetry. And I did really enjoy it, but I can't say that I've read much outside of what I studied. And I would also say that I don't like all poetry. Like, I did not enjoy studying your more kind of traditional poetry. Mm. What, like Shakespeare and that sort of thing? Yeah, and the romantics. Like, I have a lot of, I don't like this except for that, like, I hate the romantics except for Coleridge. Not big on Victorian poetry except for, like, Dickinson. I like Eliot and Pound from the modernism. I'm very picky and I don't Mm. fully know why, but I'm not big on, like, tons of poetry, if that makes sense. Yeah. My predominant impression about you and poetry is that you're not a huge fan of lyric poetry. Oh, no, yeah, definitely. So to clarify, a lyric, it's like a formal genre categorization, and it's typically a short poem. We would call short maybe like 40 lines or less. Think like, you know, it's probably only on one or two pages. A lyric is typically about feelings. I think a lot of people think it's about love. It's not necessarily, but it can be about feelings. And typically it will be like one of the predominant features of lyric poetry, although it's not essential, is using kind of um, 
what we would call poetic texture. So that would include both some kind of rhythm structure or maybe rhyme or meter, but also your more kind of uh, imagery and word type poetic texture. So your metaphors, your similes, your extended metaphors, your onomatopoeias, that kind of stuff. And that would be distinct from something like epic poetry, which is, you know, your long form narrative poems, or even just like your opinion, which are your sort of mid length poems that tell a story. But also like, I don't think I would call The Wasteland a lyric poem. No. Kind of a loose category. I like narrative poems and I like, so epic poetry, really like epic poetry. I like narrative poems. And I also like poems that can, I guess, you know, like poetry that evokes feeling mm, yeah. or makes me think, or I'm like, that's interesting. Or I feel like huh. it, I quite like poems where you kind of get a sense of the time, like what are kind of anxieties? What are people feeling? It's why I like Dickinson. It feels very kind of, yeah. you feel like you're getting a good insight. Yeah, I would class Dickinson as a lyric poet, but she's also so different from everyone else that's doing things at that time. Yeah. Mm. But I think, especially when you think of your very traditional lyric poetries, your sonnets, your, you know, romantic poems, stuff like that. I think that is, um, a lot of people think of those as being this kind of stuffy old fashioned mode. I think sometimes those are hard to get into. Mm. I should, probably should apologize then. I focused almost exclusively on lyric poetry because that's what I like. But um, there are definitely other kinds of poetry out there. Have you guys read more like modern poetry? Because I know that there was a time where I think a lot of people, I think Ru- uh, Rupi Kaur. Rupi Kaur? Kaur. Yeah. Yeah. She um, was like kind of the first to kind of almost reignite poetry books but in a modern sense but I never really found her poetry moving for me it felt very I don't want to use the word simplistic because I don't think that's necessarily the right way to describe it but I don't know how to say it without sounding mean can I have a go yeah I think she has a very sparse and um, minimalistic style minimalistic that that's a better yeah. word yeah yeah I mean I oh you go I was gonna say for this episode I did try and read like some other stuff but the most modern thing I read was like Maya Angelou oh yes mm. yeah that I did really like because there's something really I again I don't fully know what it is but there's something like there's something very propulsive about the way she writes there's a lot of feeling in it and I feel Mm. like some modern poetry you feel like you're reading the text and it's all kind of like weird layouts and short lines long lines kind of there's a lot of stuff happening but you don't fully like feel why the things are happening yeah it's like there's clearly authorial intent going on somewhere in there but you're just like I don't know what this is Mm. I think there's also a real difference between how you read it in your head. Sometimes you can't quite grasp the rhythm when you read it for the first time. And then you go back and try and catch it. But then I saw, so like with Phenomenal Woman by Maya Angelou, Mm. I read it. I was catching some of the rhythm, but when I saw her perform it, that's when it brought it to life for me. Yeah, It's like she took the performance enhanced the meaning of the poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think your sort of um, Rupi Carr type poems, apologies if we're getting that name wrong, Mm. 
I don't know. I think they were very popular because they were different from what people imagined poetry as. They are kind of sparse and minimalistic in style and they are very kind of blunt in their phrasing. Yeah, I think that there's also not too much kind of deciphering that you need to do to understand what the poem is talking about. Mm, But I think, I don't know, I have read Milk and Honey or is that the first one, Milk and Honey? Yes, Milk and Honey is the first one, I think. Yeah, I have read that one and I I liked it at the time, but I have not come back to it, which is weird for me because I find that the poems that I enjoy are ones that I just keep on going back to. Mm. But I think there are a lot of very good modern poets out there who, I mean, poetry is sort of a constant. I There are a lot of people writing poetry right now and she had a very sudden moment, but I think she is, I don't think necessarily representative of the modern poetry going on right now in its entirety and she's said I mean having said that she's not the only person doing that kind of style but yeah I quite like my poetry to be a little bit more sort of rhythmic I like a rhythm I like a meter me too I don't mind like layers of meaning or anything like that Mm. what's interesting is that now that I think about it so when I start teaching poetry I always ask students if they have a favorite poem and in I don't know a couple of years so maybe like let's say that's a sample size of 150 18 year olds mostly no one has ever said Ruby Carr I think she did have a moment but she certainly not maintained that popularity I think it's almost like one hit wonder sort of thing on on the radio you listen to the song and you're like, yeah, that's kind of nice. I'll I'll play. I'll keep that radio on in the car. And then, but you never go back to the song. It never has a lasting impression on you. Yeah, and I think also having said all that, anything that gets people enthusiastic about poetry is good in my book. You know, because poetry is great, mm. and we don't read it enough. I was just gonna say, like, do you think maybe people don't necessarily pick up poetry? as much because they associate it with school and almost that chore of having to go through poetry. Yeah. I think part of what I don't like about lyric poetry is kind of the fact that it's the exact kind of poem I'd want to get in an exam. Mm. Yeah. Because it's the exact kind of poem that you sit down and you go, yes, I know this has a rhythm. I know this has a meter. (laughs) I know this has a rhyme scheme. I can find all the similes and you don't enjoy the poem. You just start immediately breaking it down to its constituent parts. Mm. And if that's how you approach that type of poetry, you're probably not going to enjoy it. If your brain is immediately on like a a scavenger hunt for things to write about. Yeah. Well, and I think what sometimes people don't necessarily realize is that there's a reason that poetry like that is done so much in school. And it's because it's very easy to teach close reading through poetry. It's a lot harder to teach close reading through novels or plays. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Poetry is short. You can cover an entire poem in one lesson. You don't have to worry about people's reading speeds. You just hand it out and everyone will be able to read the poem in the class time. You don't have to worry about people not having done the reading. You put the poem up and it's there. And then there are some really obvious things that you can point to. You can use poetry as a way of teaching people to identify the kind of things you might see in prose. Mm. So like your similes, your metaphors, and also your more extended imagery. But it's very obvious in a lot of poetry and especially in the kind of poetry that we'll start off teaching. But I do think sort of that means that poetry gets a bad rap because we think of it as kind of obvious or ostentatious or um, unnecessarily ornamental you know Mm. and I think there's a value to aesthetic aesthetically pleasing literature you know I think there's a value to beautiful words yeah but I think the way we teach poetry it has a purpose it's meant to get you to think about how to sort of think about meaning and how to think about how words can be used 
Mm. And that's a skill not just for literature, but for life. But having said that, it does mean that sometimes we think that that's all poetry is, especially if sometimes being taught that means that you disconnect that from the effect and what it does to you. And you just think of it as, oh, these things are there so that I can find them and get points for them, you know? Mm hmm. Yeah. The thing is, we do digest poetry in the modern world through music. You know, that is like yeah. the obvious place of getting poetry content, especially with rap artists, because that is what it stands for. <laughs> yeah. What does rap stand for? Rhythm and prose, I think. I always assumed that rap was short for rapture because of that one Blondie song. I thought it was rhythm and either prose or poetry or but it is just like it's rhythmic speech and that is what poetry is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, you can sort of see like weirdly enough slam poetry sometimes as the weird mid-step between yeah. poetry and, and rap music. Yeah. Yeah. Also, though, I think sometimes music is a great way to sort of get people to think about how compelling poetry can be and also the importance of writing poetry my favorite example of this is the taylor swift song blank space apologies for bringing up taylor swift once more um, <laughs> never apologize for bringing up taylor swift <laughs> <laughs> but you know that misheard lyric in that lonely starbuck lovers starbucks lovers yeah. instead of long list yeah. of ex-lovers yeah, yeah the reason why people mishear that is because it's stressed incorrectly got a mm. long list of ex-lovers, got a lonely Starbucks lovers. So you can hear the stress more than you can hear the words. And so your brain fills in some words that suit the stress, which the original lyrics don't. I feel that's quite common in a lot of songs that yeah. people will mishear the lyrics. Yeah. And quite often they can be caused by stress mistakes. Or I don't want to call it a mistake because I could understand the idea. I think there's sometimes something compelling about what hearing someone stress something wrongly. Mm. It can produce a sonic effect that has meaning and contributes mm -hmm. meaning to the song, but it also can create some misheard lyrics. You've both sort of said that you don't really read poetry that much, but when you do, or if you do, mm. what kind of format would it be in or what kind of format would you like to read it in? And I'm thinking here about anthologies of multiple poets versus like the complete works of a poet versus a book of one poet's collection of poems. Or even like, I was thinking about how you sort of can encounter poetry in the wild sometimes, like on social media or poetry on the underground. In the wild. <laughs> yeah. I love that. My mind just immediately went of like, you're, you're suddenly hunting for poetry, you know, you're just walking down the street and then suddenly a poem jumps out at you to attack mm. you. Beware, there are wild poems out there. <laughs> <laughs> a few years ago, I read a book called Poet X by Elizabeth um, Acevedo. Apologies if I'm pronouncing that wrong. And what drew me in was that it was a novel in the format of poetry. And I loved it, but I could follow the story in this sort of verse, lyrical display mm. of the novel and I thought it was great because I think for people who are new to poetry or maybe have not been exposed to anything other than school studying poetry it helps you mm. kind of get used to the forms and yeah that's how I read it outside of school but I would love to read a proper anthology I'd love to properly get my head around poetry I feel like I'm still in a space where grasping poetry and all its complexity and forms is not I don't like it's not natural for me mm. or it doesn't come as easy for me 
because I'm kind of relying on that knowledge bank that I learned when I was like 15 years old, which doesn't, you know, doesn't carry on for that no. length of time. And it also may not be helpful in all poetry situations, whatever you're reading. Yeah. But I was in Waterstones the other day and I saw that they had like Emily Dickinson anthology lying there. And I, <laughs> I, you know, when you do it, it's like facing you, the cover's facing you. So you can't see how big it is. So I picked it up and I was like, oh my God, this is huge. <laughs> and I don't know, there was something about that that was really intimidating for me. Mm. And I just thought, I don't know if I'll, my first thought was like, I don't feel like I'm smart enough or I don't feel like I have the right tools behind me to approach this work properly. Or I, or I felt very intimidated to just start reading poetry for some reason. I think that probably, I like reading poetry in anthologies that are like, either they're short little books of just one author or mm. they're like mid-length anthologies that contain a lot of different authors that maybe mm. they're grouped around a theme or they're from the same era and stuff. Because I think that can probably help with that kind of intimidation if the book is small and you're like there's only mm. a little bit of poetry in here as opposed to like here are the complete works of one author and you're like oh yeah this is clearly something that is like you need to understand it this is like you know serious they've obviously like done a lot of things in their career that it's worth reading all of their poetry I think it's mm -hmm. it's a bit mm -hmm. easier if you just pick up something that's like a little smaller or it's a lot of different people so that you can flick through and think actually I don't like this person but you can read yeah. somebody else and then eventually you'll get a little taste of like different people and then you'll find a poem that you do like and even if like I studied English for ages I don't know fully why I like certain poems and I don't like other poems I mm -hmm. can tell you why like I can say why I like actually no better answer I can tell you why I like some poems I can't tell you why I don't like other poems mm -hmm. like I don't know like, I don't have the words for that either it's just a feeling and I think in poetry it's sometimes easier to just go off that well it sounds like it's like the way you like a song like you mm. don't know what it is about the song that you don't like it's just like I, I keep going back to music but I guess it's just the easiest thing for me to compare it to yeah or, to get my head around it yeah. but I was just thinking while you're saying that and social media Tumblr was also my exposure to poetry yeah as well outside of poets on Tumblr <laughs> loads of poets on Tumblr and loads very of like... rupee car style um... yeah I can imagine that being quite uh interesting Poetry. It was great. They'd often have what I'd call an epiphany. Mm, yeah. So an epiphany is a moment in literature where you're sort of reading something and then there's a line or a phrase in which everything suddenly clicks into place and you understand the metaphor maybe or the meaning of the rest of it. Yeah. Tumblr was all about poems where you sort of read 10 lines and it was beautiful language. And then the 12th line was the like the reveal and you understood the rest of it. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes because those poems, it feels like you've experienced something. There's something very sort of cathartic about getting to that point and sort of being hit by it. I also wanted to say, I think sometimes I think a lot about the Emily Dickinson anthology. I don't know if listeners would be familiar with the life story of Emily Dickinson, but she was actually a recluse. She never really published much poetry in her lifetime. In fact, she was better known as a good baker in the area where she lived than as a poet. Most of what we have of Emily Dickinson's poetry are things that were only published posthumously. 
which means that, and she was a very prolific poet. There are something like a thousand Emily Dickinson poems. And like, good on her. Basically, all of them are very high quality and they didn't need much by way of editing or anything like that. They, She has this very distinctive style and people have been able to enjoy them best, I think, when they haven't been messed with by an editor. But that means that there are no sort of pre-existing collections. She never grouped them. She never published some by themselves. When you encounter an Emily Dickinson book, it's always that huge collected works and it can be really intimidating. Yeah. Which is a shame, I think, because there are a lot of Emily Dickinson poems that are great by themselves but you're never going to find them in that huge book unless you just sort of sit down and flick through. I think sometimes with poetry, you need permission. Like people think of poetry as both being too easy and too difficult. So sort of, you know, there's a kind of elitist barrier to it. You know, you worry that you don't understand it or that you won't be able to read it. I think you need permission to just firstly to like not like some poems and like others and be like, well, this is just my taste. You're not misunderstanding it. You just prefer these other poems. But also I think you need permission to skip and flick around and to just find the bits that you like, you know? You don't have to start from the beginning, especially in a complete or collected works or a big poetry anthology Mm -hmm. in a poet published collection they will have put the poems in that order and it can be quite nice to read from beginning to end but if it's a big collection of poems skip around like find what you like find what you don't like play around with what's what you think a good poem is One of the nice things about poetry is there is a sort of nice accessibility to the fact that you can read a little bit and then put it down. It's less of a commitment than a novel Mm -hmm. in a way. And I think if we give ourselves Mm. permission to just sort of pick and choose and skip some and like some and dislike others, it's a lot easier to get into poetry. Okay, so I want to move on now to the poems that I chose for us to talk about this week. I feel I'm trying very hard not to do this like I would a class. So bear with me. (laughs) So... Just to clarify, I'm not going to read the poems out. I'm just going to tell people what poems they are and you can read along. They will also be links to them available free online in the show notes. Mostly because I think in an episode about reading poetry, it's quite good for you to just go and read the poetry if you want to. Um, But also I think some of them are probably still in copyright and we might not be able to read them aloud, the whole thing. (laughs) Oh gosh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you're probably right. Well, that's like you have to pay if you want to quote an Emily Dickinson poem. Really? Wait, she's still in copyright. I think so. Or at least she was for a very long time because her works are her family after she died sold a lot of her poems Uh, to Harvard. Oh, okay. And then Patrick Kavanagh and Wendy Cope are definitely still in copyright. And I don't want to like read some and not others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to think about these things with poetry. You think of them as just being recitable, but actually, you know, the lawyers will be after you. Oh my gosh. So I tried to pick a wide variety of poems, but I accidentally picked three sonnets. <laughs> so apologies for that. I really enjoyed the selection. Oh, okay, good. My first question is Have any of you come across any of these poems before? Not one. Not one? Not one. I don't think so. I've read Dickinson, but I don't remember this one. Oh, okay. So I'm pretty sure I didn't know any of these either. I'm quite pleased with that. I was pretty sure that Sophie would have at least read the, the Philip Sidney. If I did, I didn't give a shit about it and I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fair. Of all of them, I have to say, that's the one where I was like, oh, Sophie's probably going to not care about this one. But I love this poem, which is why I put it on. And I also think, so the poem, by the way, is 
Uh, Sir Philip said needs the number one from his sonnet sequence, Astrophil and Stella. So just a little bit of context for you. In the 16th and 17th centuries, sonnets were often published as sonnet sequences, which would be like, that would be maybe sort of 100 to 200 sonnets. I reckon you could probably have a sonnet sequence shorter than 100 sonnets, certainly as well. And they would normally all be about the same couple and it would be a man writing to an unobtainable woman, basically. It's a lot more complicated than that. I apologise to my Renaissance scholars out there. but <laughs> So this is the first sonnet in Philip Sidney's sonnet sequence, Astrophil and Stella. And Philip Sidney wrote this poem, but the narrative voice is Astrophil and he is writing to Stella, who is this sort of unobtainable woman. So I chose this one in part because I think it has one of the things that I really like about so many sonnet sequences, which is it's a poem about writing poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And very early on in, you know, the idea of sonnets, so many sonnet sequences, especially like the good ones, rather than just writing love poems, they're about writing love poems poetry and they're about mm. writing about writing about love poetry so what did you guys think of this one I enjoyed it I it was the first one I read and I read it the first time and I felt like okay I don't think I fully absorbed what I just read because I think the language can sometimes mm. I don't think it's intimidating but it throws you off a little bit because it's not yeah it's certainly not intuitive yes yeah, yeah. but for me when you were saying that thing about tumblr and like it's that end line that kind of gets <laughs> you that was for yeah. me what got me it was that last yeah. line and I was like oh that's a really good line that I could see on a tumblr post with like people commenting mm-hmm. going like oh so good yeah <laughs> like yeah so I think we can read that line out so just to clarify the, the poem is about Astrophil, I suppose, worrying about writing poetry and he's got writer's block and he's wondering about what to do. And it ends with, fool, said my muse to me, look in thy heart and write. Soph? I mean, this is one of those poems that I like from like, I understand what it's going for and all of Mm. that kind of thing. Like, you know, it's well written, it's well crafted, but I I wouldn't say that I like it. I just Mm. kind of like, I appreciate what he's doing. And I'm like, yeah, cool. But otherwise I'm like, I'm not going to come back and read it again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I will say Astrophil and Stella is a good sonnet sequence, but I sort of, I love this one and it's all a little bit downhill from there. This is the best Astrophil and Stella sonnet, <laughs> in my opinion, which, you know, sometimes you've got to put your best song at number one on the album. Um, Astrophil and Stella as a whole is a beautiful work of art, but I love this one. And I do think it's a very good example of your Renaissance sonnet because it's kind of classic and witty and it's meta you know he's thinking he's writing about writing Mm. but I also think there's something timeless about someone getting so in their head about writing and then at the end just realizing no I've just got to write what I want to write it reminded me of J. Alfred Prufock the love song of J. Alfred Mm. Prufock but in like the complete opposite like J. Alfred Prufock was talking about like you've got all the time in the world relax enjoy yourself enjoy your youth enjoy your time and then this one is like this overthinking and only at the end is there that like okay relax and certainly something that you know writers probably need to hear look in Mm. thy heart and write Mm. okay the next poem is by charlotte smith it is called huge vapors brewed above the clifted shore that's just the first line Mm -hmm. and charlotte smith is a oh i want to say 18th century poet that i think doesn't when you know about charlotte smith 
you will love her poetry, but not enough people know about Charlotte Smith. So what did we think about this one? I loved it. I ranked them in my head. So mm-hmm. for me, Astrophil and Stella One was kind of at the bottom of the list. I knew. <laughs> you, you knew it was a shot in the... Well, no, I just, I love Renaissance poetry. So I had to get one in, but I was like, I could have worked harder to find one that I thought you guys might like a bit more, but I was like, eh, you're still probably not going to like it that much. And <laughs> this is my favorite. <laughs> But I really liked it. I really liked how how much imagery there was in the poem. Yeah, I think this is definitely, I don't know, there's something GCSE-ish about how sort of descriptive and poetic this poem is, yes. you know? It's yeah. very yeah. atmospheric. Mm-hmm. So if- I do actually like this one. I think because I kind of like the image that she's writing about. Like, I think I'm not so into those kind of romantic poets that are like, I'm going to write about sweeping hills and it's all very pastoral and pretty I'm like Mm. not really into that but I like the image that she's kind of doing here like I like this kind of slightly darker sort of more I don't know real I guess and I just like the atmosphere in this one yeah I think the brutal indifference of nature you know not in a good way or a bad way just in a nature is dangerous but also doesn't care about you kind of way what's interesting is Charlotte Smith was actually pre-romantic but very influential Uh, William Wordsworth thought she was a very influential poet for the romance movement because she did have that kind of you know that classic sort of image of the romance man you know man staring out at rugged nature that doesn't care about him Mills and Boone sort of guy like (laughs) that you see on the covers no I think it's I mean it does eventually deteriorate into the Mills and Boone but it's when was she around um so she published elegiac sonnet I think this is from elegiac sonnets and she published it in 1783 apparently she wrote them while she was in debtor's prison with her husband and children oh damn okay (laughs) yeah So she was actually sort of, you know, she was a big believer in social justice. She published a lot of longer narrative poems sort of against the injustices. So it is called Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog. And I think this sort of man stares at indifferent nature is very typical of romance. And you can see how someone like Charlotte Smith influenced that. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of nice to know that the poet that did that first was a woman, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Charlotte Smith also, to the surprise of a lot of my students, wrote a lot about depression and nature's indifference. So you can sort of see her as a proto-Mary Oliver, which is exciting. Mary Oliver, of course, is, feels like one of she's one of the internet's favourite poets, and she similarly is interested about sort of, you know, I think there's something hopeful about Mary Oliver poems, but there's also a kind of nature's indifference thing going on. Okay, so we've now had two sonnets, and we now have our first non-sonnet, which is exciting. Uh, This is Emily Dickinson, poem 656. I started early, took my dog. Like a lot of Emily Dickinson poems, it doesn't really have a title. It just has the first line that we use as a title. Mm How did you find this one? Right. I need to ask because I'm new to poetry. I don't know if I got the wrong take on this. But Uh I read it and I was like, wow, this is quite saucy. Am I getting the wrong impression of this poem? And made as he would eat me up. Yeah, and past my bodice too. Yeah, it well, but that's what's interesting. I'm going to risk reading out a bit of this poem. Yeah, go on. But no man moved me till the tide went past my simple shoe and past my apron and my belt and past my bodice too and made as he would eat me up as holy as a dew upon a dandelion's sleeve and then I started to. I think it has some something of the sort of the John done about it where she's sort of using quite sort of racy imagery 
Mm. but not really acknowledging that it's another person. She's sort of, you know, John Donne famously wrote very sexual poems or very sort of hinting at sexual poems about his relationship to God, weirdly enough. <laughs> yeah. He wrote a lot of sexual poems about women too, don't worry. Do, do, um, you, do you remember My Coy Mistress in a DCSE? Yes. To his coy mistress, yeah. To his coy mistress. Oh, that, and yes. all that phallic imagery that, oh. <laughs> that was in that poem. Yeah. Well, but I think what's interesting about that is that she's sort of, I think my impression was that she's talking about the tide, but she makes the tide a he and she puts her very physical body into the sea, if that makes sense. Personification. Personification, yeah. I think you are picking up on something that is definitely there. Okay, I'm glad I wasn't, because I read that and I was like, oh my goodness. That's the thing. It was so metaphorically hidden that for some people, maybe they wouldn't think that straight away or, but I liked it. It was a bit more, I don't know how to describe it. Made you use your brain a little bit more, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. So I really like Dickinson, but I have a hard time with why I do. And I, I like, <laughs> I'm just, like, like I said, I have a really hard time. Okay, look, I only know why I like older medieval poetry because I spent too long thinking about it. I don't know how mm. to articulate why I like any other kind of poetry. But I, this kind of reminded me about what I really enjoyed about reading Dickinson. There's something. Yeah, like I said, I have no way of like actually knowing how I say why I like it, but I I don't know. There's always something quite like. Firstly, I think her poetry is always very vivid, mm. kind of like yeah. you get a sense of the scene that she's writing about, and you can either take that very literally, or she just literally just went to the beach with her doll. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you get like a very strong image of that, and then there's also maybe it's just other stuff lying beneath the surface. But even if you don't go into that you mm. still read something that really kind of holds your mind if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah it's evocative yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah I like that about Dickinson I like how sometimes it sort of feels like Emily Dickinson reached inside your brain and found a way to say the things that you've never been able to say out loud yeah that is how I feel about another Emily Dickinson poem I want to get the title right hold on Emily Dickinson's poem I was the slightest in the house it just feels like she knew something about me that I didn't know about myself until she said it out loud kind of thing. Um, I also really like, there's a kind of, to me at least, a contrast in Emily Dickinson. If you're not familiar, an Emily Dickinson poem is very visually easily identifiable because she is the poet that uses a lot of M-dashes. Her poems otherwise have a very distinctive rhythm. I'm going to look up the name. Almost all of her poems are written with trimeter or tetrameter. They frequently rhyme, but in a sort of patterned way. So if we look at the first verse, I started early, took my dog and visited the sea. The mermaids in the basement came out to look at me. You can hear that there's some kind of breaks in the rhyme there. Dog and basement, obviously. So it's sort of an A, B, C, B rhyme scheme. Mm. And frigates in the upper room extended hempen hands, presuming me to be a mouse aground upon the sands. A, B, C, B. And fun fact about Emily Dickinson poems, because of the rhythm she uses, they can all be sung to the tune of I'd like to teach the world to sing. Almost all Emily Dickinson poems can. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm not going to do it um, because (laughs) sometimes I do it in my classes and it's always more embarrassing than I think it's going to be. She sort of counterbalances this very sort of steady rhythm 
that she follows quite, you know, religiously with these M dashes that break it up in your brain. So the rhythm's kind of there, but also kind of not there. And it's weird and pausy and jumpy. And it sort of plays around with the visual fact of the poem on the page. You can see something distinctive about it with these M dashes. Mm-hmm. And actually, some of the first times that her poetry was published, editors would go in and take out the M dashes, which I think is just all wrong. Emily Dickinson needs those M dashes. It's part of her. However, I will also say when I was an undergrad, I was obsessed with putting as many M dashes into my work as possible because I thought I was Emily Dickinson. <laughs> and also my bad, like 16 year old poetry was just nothing but M dashes <laughs> because I was like, oh, I am Emily Dickinson. I'm so mysterious and rhythmic and non-rhythmic at the same time. Isn't and then that you end up making like Morse code instead. <laughs> yeah. And then it turns into a habit and you spend years trying to break it. Do we like the M dashes? I do like it. I Some people find them difficult. I didn't find them distracting in any way or taking me away from the poetry. Mm-hmm. I, if anything, like it made it easier to break it up a little bit yeah. and catch the rhythm in while I was reading it in my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I think you just you can't have Dickinson without the M dashes. Like, no, you just can't. generally, right. I don't believe in publishers being with the punctuation. Just leave the punctuation as it's written. It's fine. Don't mess with it. Just just leave it. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So we're coming to our fourth poem now. And I love this poem. I love this poem. And what's quite useful is when I teach it, my students love it as well, which obviously I always like. And obviously as someone who's living in Dublin, we had to get an Irish poet in there. <laughs> so this is Epic by Patrick Kavanagh, who I don't think is that well known outside of Ireland. I've never heard. But then again, I've never heard of most of these. <laughs> I don't think I've heard of him. Mm. I think he's often on the equivalent of the Irish A-level syllabus. Okay. Anyway, what did we think of this one? I I liked it. I found it really interesting. Does mm. that make sense? So I read it and then I had to reread it. And I think you can pick up more things every time you read it yeah and try and decipher it but again that same thing of like that kind of end two lines when he's referring to homer yeah uh, and the iliad i think that is what made it most interesting for me yeah it's another one of those revealer poems that suddenly yeah. click into place at the end so I f- yeah i like this one i feel like this is always the case with irish poetry like i feel like i need to read this with annotations just so that I fully understand what's going on. Like, I'm assuming some of these... Like, this is is this about Irish independence? I don't think so. Are we in the right time for that? Or is, it, is this Irish nationalism or not? Am I just immediately assuming? So, I think there is some Irish nationalism in here. It was written in 1960, so it's well past sort of yeah. Irish independence. Oh, yeah. As a, although, you know, Irish independence is still on the mind, I think. But I think it's more about that connection between the local and the international. That I think. Yeah. But I like this poem. I think yeah. it's it's one of those poems that sort of... It's interesting that you both sort of didn't... I suppose I'm, I'm mostly teaching it to Irish people. So most of them sort of get it in a very obvious, immediate way. But I suppose maybe it's sort of... It's of a place. Yeah. I mean, it's just like I heard the Duffies and Old McKay and then I'm like... Bally Russian Gorton and I'm like are these specific people yeah uh, I don't think they are I think it's just sort of talking about you know any random local person but oh, okay. you have to sort of know that that's not a reference especially because the Munich bother is a reference I do like a good poem where you sort of everything suddenly clicks into place at the end mm. it's very sort of 2012 tumbler of me but I like what I like we love it <laughs> yeah I think the moment you said he was Irish, my brain went to Yates and I was like, oh God, are these all figures of Irish nationalism that I should know who they are? No, no. There's very different poets from Yeats. Although also that was a sonnet. I think, you know, Yeats did write sonnets as well. 
And then we have, I don't know if this is a favorite poet of mine, but I have such nostalgia for this because this is my favorite poem and my favorite poet when I was like 12, 14, Wendy Cope. Um, and this poem is called After the Lunch. I loved this. I, I chose really this did. with you in mind. Yeah. It, it went to like, this was my number one after I read oh, it. You know, when you just like read sweet, something and you sigh it? and you go like, oh, yeah. it's like when you finish a romance book or you just finish a good book and you're like, you close it and you're like, oh, that was good. Yeah. yeah. There's something quite sort of instantaneous about this poem to me. You know, you just mm. sort of read it and well, oh, it gives you warm, fuzzy feelings. Mm. It's simple, but it's so effective and it touches mm. the soul with such like normal things. Wendy Cope, by the way, is a great poet for many reasons. One of which is just she's so accessible. I worry that calling a poet accessible kind of sounds derogatory like oh yeah she's one of the poets that but I don't mean it like that at all I think one of the amazing skills of Wendy Cope is that she can both be so sort of deep and layered and complex but she writes in a way that so many people find moving so yeah no I really like this poem and actually it's interesting reading this again after some of the stuff you said this is me you remember yeah. you were saying about like poetry and music like some mm. of the imagery in this poem I can imagine in like a love song yeah yeah, yeah. that is the jukebox so inside me is playing a song yeah I don't know I think I think it's very um yeah there's something quite powerful in the imagery of like you know being on that bridge in that space yeah. I feel like if Taylor Swift wrote a song about love at Waterloo Bridge, it would be something like this. Do you know? Honestly, that's where my brain went. I was like... Yeah. I was torn between this and The Orange by Wendy Cope, which is, I think, a little bit less of a love poem and more of just a... I think one of the beautiful things about Wendy Cope's poetry is how sometimes, not always, she has bitter poems, she has sarcastic poems, she has sad poems, but some of them are just so sort of hopeful about life mm. and just sort of being happy and enjoying things, which I think we don't get often enough from poetry, you know, just like a, a poem that takes cheerful optimism seriously as an artistic endeavor. Yeah. You know, and values happiness as an emotion worth representing. Especially with things about love as well, because it can be so either two sides, either you get a very like almost romantic, very obsessive. Well, I feel like most poetry, when they talk about love, it is very obsessive. Yeah. But mm -hmm. when I read that one, that felt light. It didn't feel heavy in any way. Mm -hmm. It was just a very mm. light poem, but still effective. Yeah. Oh, I believe that poem comes from a collection of Wendy Cope's. Hold on. I have this book, uh, Serious Concern. And that is just, if you want to read poetry, but you're intimidated and don't know where to start, just go out and get yourself a copy of Wendy Cope's Serious Concerns. It is beautiful, but so sort of good. I have just, I've just read The Orange. Oh! And I love it. I, I think I'm going to go right? and get some Wendy Cope anthologies because this is really good it is very light the orange makes me want to cry it feels like lazy summer days poetry yeah. do you know mm -hmm. what I mean the orange it's is that... the vibes it's of this podcast you know it is the vibes <laughs> is Wendy Cope copyrighted <laughs> I don't know yeah yeah, yeah definitely oh she's definitely like, very oh, okay. recent I think she might be still alive she is in fact still alive yeah well, can you go, Wendy? 76. I'll tell you another poet, actually. I was just thinking when I was reading The Orange and it reminded me of the way I felt 
when I listened to Amanda Gorman. And yeah. she did The Hill We Climb for Joe Biden's inauguration. inauguration yeah. 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 And I think also that sparked a lot of people almost excited about poetry mm. because it yeah. was a poem felt and you. I don't know it left such an impression on me and I was just like I forgot poetry could make you feel like this yeah it's sort of like being punched in the face with enjoyment (laughs) yeah yeah okay or or just like this energy that you get you go like oh yeah life is supposed to feel like this as well you know Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to have trauma involved with it yeah I think that's something nice about Lonely Cope because it's kind of like that sense of, especially in that and like the orange, there's a sense of enjoying just the everyday, you know, like the mundane things don't have to be mm, yeah. big and sweeping and intense. Like, no, there's there's just there's just nice things to be found in going about and doing your day-to-day life. Romanticizing life, really. Well, but also I think, especially in the orange, there's an acknowledgement that sometimes that's difficult and that's an achievement and you should be proud of that you know mm, yeah that like yeah. you know well done you 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 made it to the end of the day and you had a good day and that counts for a huge amount kind of thing mm. oh I love the orange I'm so glad you guys like the orange in a way I, I didn't want to put it in because I was like no that, that that's my special poem oh <laughs> love the orange so I had a bunch of final questions just to sum up now that we've sort of talked through all of those poems, mm. but I sort of think we've answered all of them. In particular, just that idea of what makes a poem enjoyable to you. But if you have any final Ooh. thoughts. I think something, it's hard to describe it, and I don't think you can always tell when a poem is going to give you that effect, but just that mm. emotionally touching you. That sounded a yeah. bit weird but to say. No, but like... no, no, something, something that sort of, I think a good poem feels like it's empathetic to you, you know? Yes, yeah. And you just connect with it in some way. You may not have to experience what the poet is talking about exactly, Mm. but you empathise with it and you connect over it. No, definitely. So? Yeah, I think I like poems that do kind of one or two things or, or best of all, like both at the same time. I kind of, if it's, I either like poems that, yeah, like you have a real sense of like, feeling that make me feel something or I like poems mm. that just kind of give me an insight into into things that I I don't know whether that just kind of be like what is it like different people's experiences or you know this is particularly true in like older poetry I love reading poetry and getting a sense of like what things are just occupying people's minds like hundreds or even thousands of years ago I just Mm. interesting yeah no definitely would you like to read more poetry yeah I really want to read more Wendy Cope after this yeah serious concerns it has I mean I will say Wendy Cope's sort of happy optimistic pause for thought nice moment poems are that's not all of it there are some sarcastic ones there are some funny ones there are some silly ones but serious concerns by Wendy Cope is a great collection to read I was just going to say, I also, I was looking at an article and they were talking about new books that will be coming out in 2022. And I saw that they recommended one poetry book and it's called Pocahontas, but it's spelled in like a Maori spelling. I don't know if it is. Mm-hmm. I could be completely lying, but it's written by Pai Pibble. I hope I'm saying that right. And mm-hmm. she's from New Zealand and this collection of poetry that she wrote explores Maori culture, sexuality, politics, and womanhood. 
and mm. it just sounds really interesting and I would like to try and find some modern poets as well that maybe could almost capture this point in time I think Amanda Gorman is definitely going mm -hmm. to be one of those poets for us yeah but mm -hmm. yeah I definitely want to try and read more poetry this year nice so yeah, I think I'd like to read more poetry. And also, I think it'd be nice reading poetry now that I'm not in an academic setting. Oh, mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that would feel different to, to all the other times I've kind of read poetry recently. So I think it'd be quite nice to, like, experience that. In many ways, I also think I maybe want to go back and reread poetry that I liked as a teenager. Mm. And just kind of, like, see whether I'm still with it, whether things feel different. Or, so I think that's always interesting, like going back and rereading things that you like younger and seeing just like, yeah. do I have yeah. the same taste? Have I have I changed? Have I grown? Do I care about different things now? So yeah, I think mm -hmm. I think that would be nice. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I, I'm glad. I, I don't think that I persuaded you to like poetry so much as I just, you know, reminded you about poetry. But I'm very <laughs> pleased with that. What about you, Annie? Oh, I read poetry quite a lot. Where do you go to look for poetry? How do you approach it for looking at? No, it sort of happens to me in the same way that any other book happens. I just have a book on my list that I've been wanting to read and I read it. So uh, I just read a Richard Sagan one. Howl by Allen Ginsberg is one I return to oh, a lot. Yeah, I've seen that around a lot. To be fair, you might have seen it on Pinterest because you follow me on Pinterest and yeah. I <laughs> pin these poems a lot because there's a lot of pictures of like people drawing sunflowers over the poem the sunflower which is the sunflower is my favorite in this collection sunflower sutra this is a very good very short book of poetry um very small and very sort of emotive and then just a set of deeply weird poems that i love archie and mihitabel which is sort of so basically the conceit of archie and mihitabel is don marquis the the author works at a newspaper and there is a cockroach in this newspaper office that is the reincarnated soul of a poet um, and he writes poems on the typewriter by sort of jumping up and down and they are very silly Archie sort of frequently converses with Mihita Bell who is a cat who claims to be they're quite funny they're quite blasé but some of them are very meaningful and deep as well and then set of poems that I forgot about, but are just incredible. Dear Boy by Emily Berry. There's something very sort of in love teenager about this, but in a very sort of, it takes being in love as a teenager very seriously. And I just, I like that. But yeah, poetry just sort of is around. Maybe I should start recommending you guys poetry more often. Yeah. Maybe it's my fault. <gasps> <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad that we had such a nice positive poetry episode and so long as well. I feel like we've yeah. really chatted about poetry. Okay, thank you for listening. If you want to be sort of more updated on what we're redoing, what we're reading, you can follow us on social media. We are at Lazy Sunday Book Pod on Instagram. We're also on TikTok. Yeah, that is the Lazy Sunday Book Club on TikTok. Okay. Yeah, I think that's it. I am so pleased. Thank you for letting me tell you guys all about my favourite poems. Oh, um, thanks for sharing. Have we been? Yes, we have been recording. Thank God. For a second, <laughs> I thought. <laughs> Can you imagine we lost oh, all this content? Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll be here.